0: Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last ten years we've been working in
1: all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre.
0: So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End, with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland.
1: Thank you for downloading episode 30 of Inside the West End. Follow us on Twitter at Inside West End. Find us on Facebook and now Instagram, Inside the West End podcast. And you can email insidethewestend at gmail.com. We hope you've had a lovely Christmas and you're all set for the new year. Thank you to everyone who has tweeted, shared or recommended our show. Word of mouth goes a huge way with podcasts. So please keep on spreading the word about Inside the West End so that we can become even bigger and better in 2017. Coming up, we speak to George Stiles and Anthony Drew, the multi-award-winning writing partnership who have brought us some of the most loved British musical theatre of the past 30 years. Their work includes productions for the National Theatre, the West End and Broadway, like Honk, Betty Blue Eyes, Mary Poppins, Soho Cinders, and most recently, Cameron McIntosh's acclaimed new version of Half a Sixpence. They're also currently preparing for The Wind in the Willows, which will transfer to the London Palladium next summer. Right, before the chat, we have a big announcement to make. Inside the West End is taking a break. We've decided at episode 30 it's the right time to do it and we have lots of excited things in the pipeline for 2017 so we're going to return in the spring with new episodes and fantastic guests. We're also planning to do our first ever live episode in front of an audience somewhere in the West End later in the year so keep an eye on our social media for more details about that. Now as you know it cost me and Rob money to make this show and we give it away for free if you've enjoyed the first 30 episodes and you haven't yet donated then please take this opportunity to make a donation to inside the west end we cannot continue without your support so visit insidethewestend.com click on the donate button and you will be helping us to create the next batch of episodes if you do your online shopping with amazon then you can support our podcast at no extra cost here's how Visit InsideTheWestEnd.com, click on any of the Amazon ads, they'll bring you directly to the Amazon site, then you carry on shopping. Again, it'll cost you exactly the same as normal, but we get a small kickback from Amazon as a thank you. Right, now let's get into the chat. As you're about to hear, these guys are incredibly busy, and it took us months of back and forth to arrange this interview. But Rob caught up with George and Anthony right before Christmas to hear their story. So here it is our conversation with Styles and Drew. This is George Styles and Anthony Drew, and you're
2: listening to Inside the West End. George
0: Stiles and Anthony Drew, thank you for coming to see me and welcome to Inside the West End.
2: Thank Thank you
3: for having us.
0: You've had a very, very busy year. Uh, I don't know what you mean. (laughs) Soho Cinders, Union Theatre. Half Sixpence, West End. Wind in the Willows has been hugely successful on a UK tour and is coming to the West End to the London Palladium next year. And of course, Mary Poppins is doing Roaring Trade on a UK tour again. You must be exhausted
2: and we, Yes, and we started with Travels with My Aunt Okay Which was a new musical in Chichester that opened the season there In fact, it opened the newly refurbished Minerva Theatre
0: I knew you were going to mention something that, I, that, was, <laughs> that wasn't on my list I was like, I'm just going to the main book I was Poppins,
2: you got in there with that one but, um, No, it has been, it's been a crazy year Yeah, we, we wrote a bunch of
3: shows, as you do In fact, when we both turned 50 I said to my aunts, why don't we see if we can write an entire musical every year Between now and being 60 and he said, oh, I not want to know about that. It's a bit high pressure. Well, to this point, we've actually exceeded that target because we also wrote our trilogy of musicals for younger audiences, the, the, the trilogy of trios, The Three Little Pigs, Three Billy Goats, Gruff, and Goldilocks and Three Bears, which we, all of which we premiered in Singapore and have also now been seen in China and all around the world, America and everywhere else. And it's, uh, it, so they were kind of bonus track extras. So, but that was the equivalent of another musical and a half so uh, at the moment it doesn't mean we get a
2: year off because next year is really filled up with productions because as you said wind in the willows is coming into the palladium in uh, june and we want to do a little bit of a tinker with that before we get to that point we're currently halfway through the second act of a new show for jerry mitchell which we're going to do a workshop of at the end of march but may not see the light of day until uh, 2018 and we also might have a production of soap which is a show that we wrote two or three years ago and was finished two or three years ago and has had three or four workshops already. And we've now got an offer to do that over here in London as its oral production, whereas we always assumed it would start in America because it's an American subject matter. Before we get
0: into all of this huge body of work that you've created together, I'd love to take you right back and hear about how did you meet? We met at Exeter University
3: where we were both studying. He was studying zoology and I was studying music. Predictably enough, I got lured into the Northcott Theatre, which is on the campus of Exeter University, which is the professional theatre of Exeter Town. And Anthony was producing a musical that his brother had written and asked, foolishly, very foolishly, asked me to be in it. That's what I had, oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said yes. And then um, it was literally that we'd actually met, I'd seen George perform, he'd been in Utopia Limited, the Gilbert and Sullivan production that the students had produced. He then became the musical director for Gilbert and Sullivan Society, and he conducted um, Pirates of Penzance, the, the rocked-up version of Pirates of Penzance. And so we knew one another. And then, then George was in this musical I was directing. And then, the night after that closed, and it only, to be honest, it only closed by accident. When we booked the theatre, my musical director hadn't told me that he couldn't do the last night, and being students. You know, we'd do it working around the clock for the love of it. There was nobody who could come in. So we closed the show on the Friday, which meant George and I had the Saturday off, which w- would have been you know, probably our best night. Um, and instead, we went down to the drum in Plymouth and we saw a production of um, Sweeney Todd. And it was in the car on the way back from Plymouth back to Exeter that night when we said, Should we try and write a musical and defer our entry to teacher training college? Because I was going to be a biology teacher and George was going to teach music. And we literally, I went to St Luke's the next day and said, could I defer entry? They said, yes, of course you can, come next year. And we went off and wrote the music somehow. We did not knowing we could
0: write. (laughs) A lot of people try and collaborate with other people and it can work, but when was the moment when you went, this really works, our balance?
3: I, I think literally when, I mean, we knew we were great friends, we made each other laugh and we were sort of happy to do everything together and we rented a cottage together, we made the props, we designed the set, we got the students to steal their bedsheets from their halls of residence that, so that we could turn them into pleated frocks for the Egyptians. And that's just how it began, but it was only when the audience stood on the first night as one and cheered this thing that I, I'd i actually never seen a full standing ovation in a theatre. I don't think I'd ever seen an audience stand up. It's not what used to happen back then. It's it kind of something that's been imported from the Americas <laughs> largely, The that, that you now have to stand up at the end of a musical. Um, not just to get your coats and it, and it was a very thrilling thing and, and they didn't stand up just the first night they stood up every night
0: and which show was this? this was
3: Tutankhamen which was this thing we wrote as
2: sort of hanger-on
3: students the year after we graduated at Exeter University
2: I don't, I don't really think when you're 21 I don't think you think oh this is the moment we thought oh yes we can do it we just knew that was what we were going to do and we literally we booked the Northcott Theatre and we hadn't got any money we were students so we knew that in nine months' time when the production week was going to happen. If we didn't have an audience, we were going to have a bill for £2,750. And so we just went for it. And, you know, looking back, of course it's a stupid thing to do, but um, I think the exuberance of youth and the fact that we were mates and the fact that we really wanted to do this and we didn't want to just become teachers um, became our, our purpose for that whole year.
0: During the times before commercial success what were you doing to make ends meet and prostitution <laughs> <I mean. laughs>
2: yeah and when that dried up then what
3: <laughs> yeah after that first six
0: months
2: <laughs> was, um, we were very very lucky because somebody from warner brothers came and saw *Carmen*, and and he was only in the home video department or something like that but he said i really like what you guys do i'm going to report back to head office and so within within a matter of a week or two of, of Tutan Carmen closing, we were summoned to London to meet Johnny Sterling, who was the International Managing Director of Warner Brothers Publishing. And he not immediately he, he wooed us for a long time. Every time we went to his office, he would say, What am I gonna do with you two? But he did eventually put his money where his mouth is and he gave us enough money to live on for two years to stop us from becoming teachers. And at the so that was literally that money supported us. And in 1985, we, we wrote a show called Just So, based on the Just So stories, and entered it for competition, and Cameron McIntosh was one of the judges, and he then started supporting us financially, because he, he was really interested in the show, he bought an option on it, he eventually bought the show, and he used to give us a bit of extra money to keep us going. What an incredible way to start. Yeah, well, we're
3: very, very lucky. I think we're, we're, we're outside of, um, certainly for a long time, outside of Angelo Weber and Tim Rice, I think we're the only musical theatre writing partnership in the UK that made a constant, a lifelong living from doing what they do. But sometimes, I mean, it was majorly subsidised by the kindness of those around us. My partner Hugh, the lighting designer Hugh Vanstone,
2: you know, certainly topped up my bank balance for a good few years. And and, and also, when we started out, it was at a time when you could have income support and housing benefit. And so pr- provided you went and signed on every two weeks, the government was supporting us. Yeah. So, and I don't think... I it's, we it we only did for about a year. Though, we did we? it when we were in, when we were doing Tootin' Carmen. Yeah. And, you know, it, you're meant to be available for work if work comes along, but no work came along for a lyricist in Exeter. <laughs> <laughs> so I n- they never had anything That's a good thing. I, I've only had to go out on the road, as it were,
3: once, and um, it was the most blessed job ever, and I went out with Barry Humphreys as his musical director for about a four-month tour of the UK and... It was a bit longer, and then a few days yeah, in Germany. Germany and a few other things, and it was over a year. And it was one of the most wonderful things. And I—that's I, I, the only bit of kind of whoring about that I've ever done. Other than <laughs> well, we, being did a some, we did some TV work. Oh, we did in, a lot. In, in yeah, eighty-seven,
2: did. eighty-eight, um, we in, in nineteen eighty-seven we did New Faces, which was that you know the, the equivalent of X Factor, but back then, and we, we did a double act thing with a bit like Kid and the Widow with George at the keyboard and me singing, and we we got into the grand final. And at some point between recording our episode and it going out, and then the grand final, another producer called Bob Cousins had seen the rushes of the, all the acts on New Faces, and he booked us for a series called Gas Street, which ran every Friday live for the first three months of 1988, and the money was ter- for us was terrific. Yeah, I remember when we got the phone call, we were, we were decorating the cottage we were living in in Warminster in Wiltshire, and because we hadn't yet decorated this wall... While I was on the phone, I was writing on the wall the sum to work out how much we were going to earn. (laughs) Because originally, I thought it was for one booking. I thought it was going to be one gig. And she said, oh, no, we want you for the whole series. And we became the sort of writers in residence. And we had to write
3: a topical song every week. And it was the nurses were going on strike, and it was Australia Day, and it was Valentine's Day. It was the very first
2: um, comic relief day. And the
3: very first comic relief, yeah. And And did
2: that,
0: that pressure of having to come up with topical songs for the following week... Has that influenced your speed of writing? I think
3: it did. I think it made us absolutely realise that, you know, inspiration's great, but there is also a craft, mm. and you've got to get a certain number of gags in, otherwise they're not going to approve the song, and, you know, you
2: won't, get your, you won't be back next week. Particularly with the comic song, I think. And I, I, because you can become a bit formulaic, and, and what, was, what was interesting was the later we left it in the week, the more topical it was the only tr- tricky thing was learning the song because if you left it so late in the week it was going out live on friday and we had to then perform it so it had to get to a point when we could rehearse it what we used to do was come up from Warminster to um to london on the wednesday and we, where we had a, a guy called keith Stracken, who's a quite a well-known musical director in the, in the west end now and he would help us with our song from the point of view of This joke doesn't work, or that that joke could be improved, or you might not get away with this. It had to go by the lawyers at Central TV. We would then write our own camera script, because he knew he had three cameras, a wide shot on the two of us, one on him, one on me. So we we would break our lyric down so that the producer knew which camera to be on for which line, which saved them a job and then we would send it off to them on the Wednesday night all day Thursday we would learn the song and then the best thing was that we got a new outfit every week paid for by the show
3: <laughs> yes they did so we now. literally went shopping got 13 entire new outfits each so that lasted for years
0: did you I find know, yourself writing thing. songs which necessitated a, a particular colour <laughs> of suits you were the worst
3: one was that with the, I think the final one was the worst <laughs> the song was the Eurovision song and I decided it would be a good idea to get up from the piano I put an awful lot of gel in my hair.
2: Oh, It was God, very, was it very awful. funny. He's like a little ferret who suddenly pops into the screen. <laughs> <laughs> You've you just spoken a about... A ferret? <laughs> <laughs> the most flattering
0: of animal uh, comparisons. Um, you just spoke about writing songs and, and thinking about um, TV production. When you're writing musical theatre, do you think about how this will be staged, or do you just focus on character and song?
3: Well, I think you always have to have a picture in your head and you have to think if the director says, well, what the bloody hell am I meant to do with this? It's a good idea to have an answer. Um, But I think it's also a very big mistake to go. It must be a big house with three floors and a staircase running up the middle. I I remember when Bob Crowley first looked at the script, Mary Poppins, he said, well, you've made this impossible, haven't you? (laughs) except he doesn't speak in an Irish language <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but, and Bob said you know it's impossible you've got we're going up and down and up and down and then we So said, I think we've got to look at the, the, the order in which we
2: tell these scenes if possible and yeah. we did I and remember one fine. time he talked about almost having like a spiral staircase it was a mm-hmm. staircase that kept going up and down so you knew which floor you were on in the house but that, that never materialised we still ended up with a
3: two tonne Nursery and the Flies
2: of the Prince Edward. I think you, I mean, the, the, long, the longer we've done it, and we've been writing for 33 years now, you have a, a pretty good idea of how something's going to end up on stage. Of course, you don't know how the design is going to be, you don't know who the actor's going to be, but you sort of have, you get a smell of how a scene's going to work and how a song's going to land, and, and particularly from George's point of view, when he's briefing the orchestrator, the mood, and as Sontime calls it, the temperature of the moment, I think we're pretty good at getting and in terms of talking of the
0: orchestrators, mm. um, the orchestration of a show can create an, the iconic sound. If you, I mean, if you Absolutely. look at shows Angelo and Webber would have written, presumably written Phantom of the Opera on a piano, and the iconic sound is that organ, and uh, you know, we all know what riff I'm talking about. But when that happens... Do you literally hand it over to someone else and they do it or do you have really strict things and ideas already in your head?
3: Well, I think like a lot of composers who don't orchestrate themselves, the, the longer you do it, the more sounds you have in your head, the more of a reservoir of different ways you can piece together an orchestra and add electronics and production into it. Um, I think one of the great things that Andrew did with Phantom was, as always, being somebody who's very aware of the zeitgeist, he understood that you could sequence at that point in pop music production, you could sequence a synthesizer to get that very precise and it was the absolute, it was the fact that it was to click that made that feel both modern and kind of gothic all at once when it first came out and, and makes it timeless, I think because it was that kind of fusion thing that he does. Mm. But I, think, I think with us, we've, we've been lucky to work with Bill Brown more than anyone else, who's just one of the great classic orchestrators, who reaches back into the European tradition and right across the jazz tradition of Gershwin and Cole Porter and that whole genre, and, and yet strides forward into now and gathers everything up in his wake. And, and I just love working with him, because he, he makes me think about what I write as a piano part, and often even beyond that he makes me look at compositional stuff about key relationships and just whether there's something slightly more exciting in the way we piece together an overture moment or the way we get into a key change and, and just just technical tricks in a way but, but he's, he's one of the great he, he orchestrates from character he goes what's the character mm. of this moment He actually going? he likes
2: to choose an instrument for a particular character yeah he does and then he will use that instrument Repeatedly for that character mm. through the show, doesn't he? Yeah. But George writes a very, very fulsome piano score. Mm. And he, it's not just a case of writing a tune. He, he works and works and works at it and tries different rhythms going on in one hand. And it's still the same melody. But Bill Bron loves to watch George play a piece before he orchestrates it because he can see where George's heart and soul is within the melody or within the accompaniment to it. You're clearly a partnership which
0: works as we discussed earlier but with any collaboration there must be moments where you have different ideas on the things how do you overcome a creative disagreement <laughs> that's such a politically
2: correct way of asking that I question nor-
3: I normally shout
2: <laughs> it's, it's rare that we disagree about something within the show I would say isn't it yeah very rare the, the, the only time really that we seem to be on slightly different pages is with deadlines and um, me and me having enough time to I would say I need thinking time I can't just sit at a piece of paper and write the thing I need to have time off to, to collect my thoughts and I was describing it to somebody the other day and he said oh so you meditate and I said I don't meditate and he said what you just described is like meditation and I can sit in a chair for hours on end and think and it, of course I'm not always thinking about the, the lyric that I've got to write but it it is collecting thoughts on different subjects and thinking of ways of saying things differently that I need that reflective time and and we just we were down in france uh, about three weeks ago and um we had a, a deadline imposed upon us and i just said to george i've been worrying about this because this the fact that there's a deadline coming up in, in january to deliver a full workshop of a new show i said is cramping my brain the minute we moved that deadline to the end of march we wrote four songs
1: mm. No, and you, have
3: to, you, you do learn You learn how each other is. I think it's as simple as that. And sometimes I will, you know, I'll step on his feet and he'll step on mine and I will talk to him about the lyric or whether I think the line's too long or whether we could vary it. And, you know, I really like the way that grammar and that syntax is. And then sometimes I know not to fight that and I've just, I've said it. And if he comes up with a better way or a different way of saying it, he'll, he'll literally just send me the coupler and I'll think, oh, OK, so it did go in. I wasn't even sure he'd heard me, but it went in and he comes back and goes, well, how about that? Is that any easier? And so it's just a an matter of being patient with each other, I think. And he's very patient with me. Sometimes I will worry a tune to death over two days to get one phrase right. But I know that it's only if when I get that one phrase right that the thing will actually work and it will hook
1: itself into your mind and you'll realise it's meant to be that way. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Stay with us and we'll be back to the chat in a moment. If any businesses out there listening think that our theatre-loving audience would like to hear about your product, then we'd love to hear from you. Rob and I have put a huge amount of time and effort into the 30 episodes that we've independently produced. And we'd love to have a partner with a great brand that would benefit our listeners. For more information, email inside the Westend at gmail.com. As I mentioned at the start, the podcast is going to take a break and return in the spring. So if you've not already listened to our earlier episodes, then go back and check out our other interviews with guests like Kerry Ellis, Gary Wilmot, Eva Noblazada, Tim Minchin, Killian Donnelly. There are writers, actors, stage managers, wig mistresses, ballet dancers, theatre critics. Some of them are names you'll recognise, others you won't. But rest assured, we specifically choose guests who have the most inspiring stories about their route to the top of their chosen field. Right, now back to the chat with Styles and Drew.
0: You've been employed a number of times to expand on the pre-existing work of others mm. most notably Cameron McIntosh mary poppins and more recently currently showing in the west in half a sixpence yeah how different is that than working on you totally on your own terms
3: it's very different because somebody's given you a color palette to start with yeah. and so you've got you've got a world um of musical language that is somebody else's so Personally I love it because it means you get to put your brain into somebody else's brain and then see if you can think like them
2: and work like them. And yeah, talk sometimes like you, it sometimes, talk like you. sometimes it's nice to have a sort of constraint. And in the case of Mary Poppins, we knew we were trying to write in the style of the Sherman Brothers, who we loved so we studied a lot of their songs and when we, when we wrote Practically Perfect which is the first song we wrote for it which was really a pitch for the job we had listened to an awful lot of Sherman Brothers songs by then to see how often the title falls where it falls in the chorus um, But we grew up with those songs
3: they were our, as Richard Eyre called it our musical DNA yeah.
2: it was, For up. us it was particularly the Jungle Book and Chi Bang Bang more so than it was mary poppins we did we, neither of us actually watched mary poppins when we asked to, when we were asked to Shocking do it admittedly. we had we'd seen lots of clips because they used to do those disney time tv shows at christmas and easter um where there'll be someone like philip schofield hosting a show and they'd be showing lots of clips from both live action and cartoons so i sort of felt that i'd seen most of the bits of mary poppins but just never sat through the whole film so the first thing we did was get the dvd and watch it mm. and um and try to imagine where songs might go. We didn't know they were going to write a whole new play. Julian Fellows was going to write a whole new play, which was going to not only facilitate areas where new songs could go in, it was also going to necessitate some of the existing songs to be rewritten to make them tailored into Julian's book.
3: So, so often the job is, is actually elongating things as well, because in the movie, supercalifragilistic is 1 minute 58 seconds and is sung in animation after Mary Poppins wins an animated horse race. And they say, "How do you feel, Mary Poppins?" She goes, "Super and it's over one minute 58 seconds later. The stage version is six minutes long, and it's one of the biggest production numbers of the evening. It comes at that moment, sort of eleven o'clock in Act One, or that's about ten o'clock in Act One. And you, you know, you know, you've got to take the roof off the theatre at that point, and you've got to deliver a complete thing that is choreographic, is visual splendour, and so one of the first things was can we write any more of the verses to it, any more of the mm-hmm. fun bits? So, we,
2: which is where Well, we wanted to make it mean something, you know. I up. think musical theatre has moved on and audiences are that much more educated now when they come to the theatre. And you can't just stand still and have a point number that's just riffing on, a, on a, an idea without it developing the character or moving the story forward. And we made Supercal about the invention of language, so all of the verses now pertain to the Romans and the Greeks and the, the ancient Egyptians. Egyptians yeah and about how they and, and and cavemen and how they've always had the need to communicate and that's what the song was about when you just
3: only co- almost does the same thing yeah. doesn't it goes through time the verses of that but you know then we add little things like they're only very small but you know the the, the, the little vamp in it goes um little little um did lie um did a little um diddle, I. well i added a tiny counter melody to that the um did a little um did a lie um did a little little um did a lie that goes with the other one that just third time through it's like you're not just going to sing the umdiddles again you're going to do that and then of course we did the spelling out of the word which was an idea cameron had when we were doing a reading yeah. i was i was teaching the, the first company ever to read the show at his offices in bedford square uh, just 10 people around the piano and he suddenly came down i've got an idea dear. come up here so i left them all to have a coffee break and you were out somewhere and he Oh, said, i was in there rehearsing we should spell it first. we should spell it oh yeah you were yeah and I said, what do you mean spell it? And he said, like doe a dea, we should steal from the best. We should spell it out. And I said, but well, you can't, it's the longest word in the dictionary.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is there when you're working with a big character, like Cameron or any other big theatre producer, it when an idea is being thrown at you like that, how do you switch off being intimidated by this is Cameron Macintosh? I need to listen to him? Or do you accept this? He's successful. I need, you know. Therefore, he probably knows what he's talking. Yeah. So it's, depends. We our our relationship has grown
2: so much. We met him in 1985, and we really do consider him a friend now. And so, the if there was any intimidation in the early days, which I don't know that there was. I think in the early days, in the same way as our relationship with our agent was sort of a mother son relationship, it was kind of a father son relationship, and it's now become mates. And I think he respects us because we've achieved you know, a certain amount. And, and we respect and listen to what he's got to say because, you know, with a show like Half a Sixpence, for instance, he was in his build as the co-creator and that's really what he did. He brought Julian to the party, he brought us in and he was the architect who had a vision for the whole evening. He knew what he wanted it to feel like in that theatre, the tone of the whole piece. And that's what... I think we're getting better at getting on the same page as him when when, when he gives us an idea. And it may not necessarily be the idea that we run with, but it it prompts us to come up with a reaction to what he has said, which ultimately achieves what he wanted. Is it nice having that extra voice? uh, Do you know, I think it is. If you'd asked me ten years ago, I'd have said no, but I think it is. And I think on shows when we don't have it, we miss it. Because... It's just not. I mean, you know, he said with, with um, Wind in the Willows, he said, you've got to be in the absence of me. You've got to be me. And George always says, I feel like I've got Cameron sitting on my shoulder. But it, somehow, you know, immediately with Cameron, whether something's working or not.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing, because it, if you as Mary Poppins says, if you don't get out of your own way, then it can be a problem. If you take it as a challenge and as a that, that he's trying to in any way undermine you or usurp you or just wants to change things for the hell of it, then you're on a completely losing wicket. If you accept that he just wants it to be as good as it possibly can be and he's simply striving for that, even if he can't find the right language or the right idea, then you win.
2: Yeah, and there was a very, very interesting, interesting example in Half a Sixpence because, as you know, it ran all summer in Chichester. And there was a new song we'd written called Back the Right Horse, which the, the actor, manager, character within the show, it's the play he's written, and he's trying to persuade Arthur Kipps to invest in it. So it had run all summer with this song, and it got a good reaction. We'd and, recorded the cast album yeah. with it. And Ian Bartholomew, who plays the role, was very happy with it. And it, we, we were coming into London, and it was actually I think it was like a Tuesday before we opened? Yeah. That's that's when it went in. I think on the Friday, Cameron said, I think we need a chorus for this song. And George, I think you gave me the message that morning. You said Cameron's on the warpath He wants a chorus for Back the Right Horse. I said, how can you put a chorus into a song that's already a song? What's it going to be saying? Because the song is already saying everything that you needed it to say, which is why it's in the show and it's been in the show all summer. When I, by the time I came into the theatre, Cameron said, it's as if you've written a wonderful introduction to a song which is about to become, there's no business like show business, but you never get to the chorus. So, I said, so we thought about it and... And it was all being filmed for a documentary, so was, which is an added pressure because we have to come up with ideas on the spot. But George came up with a tune on the spot and it was called um, the, joy of, oh, the Joy of the Theatre because one of the things that kept coming up in all the reviews was how joyful the evening was. And I think it was you who said The Joy of the Theatre. And he wrote this tune and Cameron went downstairs and within about half an hour we'd written it. And he came back up and he absolutely loved it. Oh. So the problem then was just finessing it slightly. I wrote a second verse or something for it. Um... And then and we have in previews. You then have that
3: that classic thing, which we've never really done before: putting a new show in while the show is previewing. So the actors are rehearsing it one day, going back to the old version that, that night, night, rehearsing it the second day, and going and putting it in, adding choreography, Lighting, relighting it, reblocking it, new
2: orchestration. So it was, it really was. It was a very big, huge fun for poor Ian Bartholomew, but it and he did ep- it word perfect, yeah. and Cameron was right. Yeah. And although you didn't miss it when it wasn't there, I think now you've got it, you would miss it. It just gives a little lift at that moment in the act.
0: A lot of your work has involved animals as characters. <laughs> Pigs, birds, and now moles and toads, mm-hmm. pointing at the logo. not <laughs> <laughs> to say the word toad, I just gestured towards Anthony, and I just suddenly became very aware of how that may have seemed. I was, of course, referring to Toad in Wind of the Willows. Um, Anthony, as you mentioned earlier, you studied zoology. Yes. How much has this background played a part in the writing? or well, Was it just a coincidence?
2: It, it, it is, I mean, I think it is a coincidence, but I, I do like the fact that, you know, all the, all the subject matters we've, we've tackled are very anthropomorphic. They're animals who talk. You know, Kenneth Graham's characters all speak in English. So it, it's only a small leap. And I think there's something inherently appealing to me about those those famous books from our childhood and from English literature and from Danish literature. You know, Honk is based on Hans Christian Andersen's Ugly Duckling. But it's one of those classic stories. I always say it's it's almost every film Barbara Streisand ever made was the Ugly Duckling, because Funny Girl is the Ugly Duckling. Yentl is the Ugly Duckling. It's about someone trying to fit in. Pretty Woman is Cinderella. There are certain stories like that which are really. I don't remember Barbara
3: Streisand in that one. No, she wasn't.
2: Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I was thinking of, of our soho cinders. There are certain there are, there are certain stories. Romeo and Juliet's another one that are just classic basis of all sorts of other stories. And I think the fact that you can you can do with a with a witty designer like Peter McIntosh who designed Honk and Just So and Now in the Willows, he has a wonderful way of anthropomorphising, and I think it adds a level of wit to the evening. And it's appealing to different generations, which I love, when you get grandparents and parents and children all coming and getting something different out of an evening in the theatre. And that's what all of those shows have striven to do.
0: We have two questions that we ask everyone who we speak to. The first one is, is show business a game that you need to learn
2: how to play? Watch, that's interesting. I think for longevity you do, because I think... The longer we've done it, the better we've got at it. And part of that is knowing how to play the game. And it's knowing how to play the game with pitching your script to somebody, with meeting actors, with meeting producers, with establishing a rapport with the people who are gonna want to come and work with you again. So from that point of view, whether you call it a game, I don't think it's a manipulative game, but I think it's, I think, I think like anything, if you're good at something, there's a way of proliferating that goodness. I would say to students um, at drama schools, they talk about being triple threat. I said there's a fourth threat, and that is to be nice. Because it's one thing to be able to dance and to sing and to act, but if you're not nice with it, people aren't going to employ you. You've got to make it such that people want to employ you again and again and again. And even if you may not be the best dancer, if you're great fun to have around and you're great fun to have in the company, you're going to get employed. So if that's a game then show business is a game. If it's common sense, which I suspect it might be, um, it's common sense.
3: I'd say that it's a game, and like all games, you enjoy it much more when you abide by the rules. However, it's very important that now and again somebody comes along and chucks it all out. Um, Although that actually happens more rarely than one thinks. I went back to Rent the other night, 20 years on, and I'd always enjoyed it. Uh, rather more than you ever had, but I absolutely loved it in this revival. I felt that the distance of time had really added so much to it, and it sits now in context. But you know, Jonathan Larson absolutely was steeped in show business, even though it was his one song, as it were. I mean, obviously there was Tick Tick Boom as, as well beforehand, but but it was it did shake things up, and it and it and the same has happened with Lin Manuel Miranda, and yet. Lynn knows all the rules, all of them. He knows absolutely everything that's gone before, encyclopedically. And I think that's what makes him great, but he's managed to look at it and make it sound as fresh as paint. And of course, that's the great skill. And, and, and you always, you know, Tim Rice used to say to us when we popped up, it's so exciting. He used to say, to say new talent coming on the scene and what will be next? You know, It probably won't come from the theatre, it'll come from left field. And, and everyone is always looking for that. And we had lunch with Andrew Webber last week and Andrew was, you know, he's, he's so in with what's happening now. His foot is absolutely just feeling around the whole time for what's breaking through. And that, that's very exciting because I think that keeps everybody fresh.
0: The other question that we ask is, what advice would you give to anyone who wanted to work inside the West End?
2: Be resilient. Yeah, knock on a lot of doors. Um, it's, 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 again, it's interesting that you people who are so um, vociferous in their attack to try and get into the West End, I think will ultimately get there in some way or another. I've seen it happen so often with young people just because of their personality and they keep knocking on doors and they keep asking the right questions and eventually someone says, look what, I need a runner on this show. A producer of the play that goes wrong, Kenny Wax, and Top Ruffalo hat. and Top Hat... We knew Kenny when he was a runner. He used to work for DeWinters, Winter's, the design and communications company. he did do all the posters for the West End. And he heard that Cameron was producing Just So. And he, went, he wrote to Cameron a letter and said, I want to be a producer. Can I come and have a chat with you? And Cameron was, you know, he was kind of taken aback by the effrontery of this boy, saying, I want to be you. How do I do it? And he said, well, look, Kenny, my best advice to you is that I have done everything in the theatre. I've swept the stage. I've done the lights. I've acted... He's done it. Cameron's done every single role. He said, That's what you need to do. Uh-huh. And so Kenny's gave up his job with the Winters and came to be a runner on Just So. So he was literally getting us Kit Kats and bringing our coffee and stuff for moon rehearsals. And one day he said to us, um, I keep hearing the word score. People keep talking about the score. What's the score? And George said, Well, it's all the music. <laughs> <laughs> well, now Kenny's one of the most successful producers in the West End. And it was just from that, that tenacity. And, and, you know, you know, get it a lot in young people. There was a young guy called Andy Room, who, who wrote to me um, two summers ago when I was directing Our Three Little Pigs. And he's, he literally written to me, he said, I want to be a director, could I come and shadow you? Well, within a couple of days of receiving this email, um, we, we realised we needed someone to help backstage. So I said, "This is Andy Room wants to shadow me, let's see if he does any, anything backstage. And he, within half an hour, he was there. And that production, which ran at the Palace Theatre last summer, wouldn't have been able to work... If Andy Room hadn't been on that show, and it was just—he's just a twenty-one-year-old, twenty-two-year-old who just happened to write at the right time. So, that, so some of it's luck, but some of it is just having that that tenacity and not being put off by rejection.
3: I'd also say that remember the West End, glorious though it is, is not everything. We began at Exeter and we wouldn't have been able to do it had we not cut our teeth there had been given an opportunity at the Watermill who then commissioned three, four shows off us one way or another between the two mm-hmm. of us had we not gone off to America in the middle years really before it all broke we'd be doing a bunch of shows out there and, and you know it, it's a slow slog and if you're a writer it's a really slow slog So go wherever the work is, but do it, be in anything. I would say if you're an actor, go and do the fringe shows, even if it nearly kills you and you have to have three bar jobs and everything else. Yes, it's not the perfect financial model. Yes, there's lots that we should change and lots that we should work on, but it is happening and it is where people see you. And, you know, we have legions of stories of of the fact that we've seen people in a show somewhere, you know, under a railway arch, in a cardboard box, hanging off a street lamp, and then two days later you've cast them because you needed someone. So just get out there, be seen and do it, but be resilient because you'll have a great triumph one minute and you'll be stacking shelves in Tesco again four days later.
0: George Stiles and Anthony Drew, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Um, I'm a massive fan of your work. It's been fantastic to ask you all these questions uh, and I can't wait to see Winning the Willows at the Palladium next year no we're very
3: excited about it it's, it's, a, it's a score that's um, I think quite close to our hearts it's, it's very rangy and uh, yeah we can't wait for you to come and hear it
1: George and Anthony thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with Rob for the podcast and well done Rob and another fantastic chat by yourself uh, it's really nowhere near as easy as he makes it sound Half a Sixpence is playing at the Noel Coward Theatre in the West End and we'd like to thank cast member and great friend of the podcast Nick Butcher who came to us with the idea for this interview and helped us to make it happen. Go see Half a Sixpence folks it's brilliant and it's worth noting that they do a lottery every morning for £20 seats. Also, as they mentioned in the interview, the highly acclaimed new production of The Wind in the Willows is coming to the London Palladium from June 17th, later this year. You can get more information on that at windinthewillowsthemusical.com. I'll be on tour until May with The Commitments. Do let me know if you're coming along to see the show. You can keep up to date with everything to do with Inside the West End podcast by checking out at Inside West End on Twitter. And make sure you stay subscribed because we will be releasing some bonus material over the coming months. Our next episode will be out in the spring. Until then, Happy New Year and thank you for listening.
0: Inside the West End with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland.